Black Sun Rising, Part 6. They tell us that 2,000 years ago, the Roman Empire sent 20,000 men, three legions, into the forbidden swamps of Germania's Tudorberg Forest. The legions, as of yet invincible, were elements of the most powerful military force the world would see till the rise of the British Empire. They were there to fight a punitive action against the Germanic tribes who were reticent about joining Rome's empire. The Romans had been tricked onto terrain unsuitable for their style of battle by their own ally, a trusted German nobleman named Arminius, who had been raised amongst the Romans and groomed to unite Germania's feuding warlords under the banner of empire. Inexplicably, Arminius had known seemingly from the start that he would oppose his Roman mentors. The reward for his loyalty to the tribes would be his murder at their hands a decade later, and it never could have ended any other way. But he led the rebellion regardless. Not one legionnaire would leave the Tudorberg Forest. For the next millennium, Germania would remain free, independent of empire and isolated from the Christian pestilence that would eventually destroy Rome and plunge the Western world into the Dark Ages. Arminius was born to the Terusi tribe, a preeminent tribe in northwestern Germania. Because of lingual differences from the surrounding Germanic tribes, they have been linked by scholars to an enigmatic ancient Indo-European tribe known as the Veneti. Over 300 Venetic inscriptions have been translated. According to alleged Roman historian Titus Livius, Said to be native to the region of Veneti, the region, the Veneti originally settled in northern Italy by way of Troy. The inscriptions show they worshipped a goddess whom they called Rieta. Their alphabet is similar to the Etruscans who boarded them to the southwest. There is mitochondrial DNA evidence linking northern Italians, Nordics, and the then speaking tribes of America to each other and what then would have been ancient Sumer. Apple Group X is a recurring genetic marker found in these diverse peoples. It's particularly prevalent in the Druze, a minority population in Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. But it is also found in Northern Europeans who were ancestors of the Celts. Northern Europeans can be linked directly to Egypt through the neighbor sky disk. Additionally, Apple Group X is found in concentrations in the area of Italy that once compromised the land of the Etruscans the progenitors of Rome. The Etruscans traced their own origins back to the Minoans, who wrote in Linear A, now popularly accepted by scholars as to be one of the er, er, an early form of Semitic. So, among Native Americans, Hapal Group X appears in northern Amerindian tribes, including Ojibwa, the Nuchatnulth, the Sioux, the Yakima, and the Naden, speaking Navajo. The homogeneity of the Den sequences suggests that they acquire haplogroup X relatively recently, about 1,000 years ago. The sequence data and phylogenetic analysis suggest that the Native American and non-Asian Old World haplogroup X mitochondrial DNAs share a common maternal ancestor, but also suggest that they diverged from each other 31,000 to 36,000 years ago, originating in the Old World and migrating into America. Group X is most conspicuous by its absence from Siberia, much like the Clovis spear point. In the third part of this essay, we presented evidence 
which has been suppressed at all costs, that the Maya built and lived in Tikal without even disturbing the surrounding jungle, let alone using tools. The same way the Talmud tells its readers the first temple was built. The Maya vanished in an orgy of violence, and a few years later their traditions of cannibalism, human sacrifice, and even their favorite ball game played with a human head would be duplicated by the Anasazi of the Southwest. With the recent introduction in, onto, academic play, uh, onto the academic playing field of the disternal map, presumably even the most incorrigible of National Geographic's fans have finally gotten it straight. The map is connected to the 1848 Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and shows three migration points depicting the southerly migration route of the Aztec beginning in Utah. The distribution from Canada to South America of the Udo Azteca language, the dietary consumption of both corn and human flesh, and the very existence of the Anasazi themselves make it a foregone conclusion for any scholar not sucking up to the ap- academic grant trial that the Aztecs migrated into the Mexican Valley from the Great Salt Lake area, the land of the Anasazi. That the Aztecs were the Anasazi is the logical scientific conclusion. But unfortunately for scientific empiricism, the same blood-soaked land is now occupied by the Mormons. The Mormons' Masonic and Jewish affiliations are well-documented, as is their penchant for adjusting history to suit what they believe to be the revelations of the angel Moroni. The unspeakable truth is when the cannibalistic Aztecs swarmed into the Mexican Valley less than a thousand years ago, they, or at least the cadre of the Sumerian priesthood that was their evil core, were exercising their biblical right of return to their Mayan homeland. And it was they, their Vatican cleanup crew of, of conquistadors that laid Mesoamerica, Mesoamerican civilization to waste and saw to it that the codices and even time itself were erased, all in an effort to cover their diabolical tracks. It may be just coincidence, but the tribal names Anasazi and Ashkenazi are almost identical. Columbus' hook X signature marks him as a night temple for posterity. He came to America expecting to contact remnants of Sumerian civilization. He brought with him Luis de Torres, a Chaldean interpreter, and most likely the enigmatic Chronicler X, too. Chronicler X, a fabled pre-Columbian book about Mesoamerican civilization, would have been compiled by the Knights Templar during their prior almost 300-year exclusive access to the Potosi silver mine in Bolivia and the entire east coast of the Americas, as discussed in Black Sun Rising 1. It said Levy wrote extensively on the history of Rome during the reign of Augustus Caesar. Although his monumental history of Rome is all that is known to have survived of his work, Levy was used as a source for many of the historians who came after him. Julius Obsequens, who would use him as a source to write the Book of Prodigies, an account of the supernatural events attendant to the founding of the Roman Empire between 249 B.C. and 12 B.C. Writing of the year 100 B.C. of Sequins says, when C. Marunus and L. Valerius were consuls in Tarquinia towards sunset, 
a round object like a globe, a round or circular shield, took its paths in the sky from the west to the east. According to academics, by 100 BC, Rome had just successfully concluded the over, hundred, over a decade-long Cimbrian War with the Nordic tribes over who would rule the Italian peninsula. It had been a series of pitched battles between massive armies in which both sides had inflicted over 100,000 dead on the other in different engagements. In the history of Rome, they fight their civil war in 91 BCE. The war has been dubbed the Social War by historians. Obsequens writes, Adorinae, while Livius Trasso was promulgating the laws at the beginning of the Italian law, war at sunrise, there came a terrific noise in the sky, and a globe of fire appeared burning in the north, in the territory of Spoltrum. A globe of fire of golden color fell to the earth, gyrating. It then seemed to increase in size, rose from the earth, and ascended into the sky, where it obscured the sun with its brilliance. It revolved toward the western quadrant of the sky. In the social war, Rome's allies to the Italian peninsula would win equal citizenship in the emerging Roman Empire. Obsequens, whose also records seemingly random Fortean phenomena like this description of what, for all intents and purposes, sounds like a rocket launch. In 42 BCE, something like the sort of weapon or missile rose with the great noise from the earth and soared into the sky. The Book of the Prodigies would be, be the first to be published in 1508 in Venice by, by printing press pioneer Aldus Minutius. It is in Venice at that same time which our story begins. It's said that the Veneti had fought at, at the side of Rome since the Punic Wars, and after the Social War they had become citizens. So, for all intents and purposes, since time out of mind, the Veneti have spoken Latin, and all that's really known of, of them comes from sparse and highly disputed translations of inscriptions to a forgotten goddess. As academic history goes, in the 5th century, the Veneti would over, be overrun by the Visigoths and the Huns, and in the 6th, invaded and occupied by the Lombardi. A small strip on the coast containing the ever-expanding island city of Venice was all that remained under control of the Constantinople, Rome's heir in the east and the heart of the Byzantine Empire. In the beginning of the 8th century, Venice threw off the Byzantine yoke and began electing its own leader, taking great pains to de develop an ever-increasingly complicated electoral process which limited the influence of any one family. This elected ruler, called the Dodge, served for life. At the beginning of the 9th century, what was then the embryo of, Venetian, of the Venetian Republic successfully resisted Charlemagne and his Pope, causing the death of Charlemagne's son, Pepin, King of Italy, in the process. By the latter half of the 12th century, the pr uh, prosperous cities of the region would form an alliance called the Lombard League and su successfully defend their sovereignty against Charlemagne's Germanic successor, Holy Roman Emperor Fred Frederick I, Barbarossa, Redbeard. At the dawn of the 13th century, avenging the, avenging the city's ethnic cleansing of its Venetian residents 20 years prior, the Venetian fleet would make a detour with the Fourth Crusade and sack the Christian 
uh, Christian Constantinople. They looted it of everything of value that could be transported, putting an end to the Byzantine Empire. Seventy years later, in what would come to be called the Silk Road, Marco Polo would establish Venice as the European link to the Mongol Empire, Persia, Armenia, the Caucasus, and Asia Minor. For the next 500 years, the Venetian Republic would be the most powerful city-state in Europe and its center of commerce. While the Venetians plundered Constantinople, a storm was brewing in Europe. As emperors of the Holy Roman Empire, the House of Hohenstaufen, of whom Barbarossa was the progenitor, had been waging war up and down the Italian peninsula for a half century. They were attempting to establish their authority over the scheming popes and principalities and fiefdoms, like Venice, that divided Italy, Germany, and Burgundy. Supporters of the emperor were called Ghibellines. Supporters of the pope, Gulfs. Frederick II was the grandson of Barbarossa, and the third and the last of the Hohenstaufen emperors. In 1208, he came of age, not only as the Holy Roman, Roman Emperor, but as King of Sicily too. Frederick was also King of Jerusalem by way of marriage, and in 1228 negotiated a bloodless resolution to the Sixth Crusade, favorable, favorable to both Islam and Christianity. It is said he remarked during negotiations with the Sultan of Egypt that he had no doubt that the Caliph was descended from the Prophet, but they must remember that the Pope was found in a dung heap. Called the first European by Frederick Nietzsche, the Antichrist by Pope Gregory IX, and Super Monday, the wonder of the world, by his contemporaries, Frederick would almost single-handedly drag Europe into the Renaissance. Excommunicated no less than four times, he had no use for any of the great religions. He supposedly once remarked that there were three great frauds in history, Moses, Jesus, and Mohammed. Frederick spoke a half dozen different languages within his own and within his own territory would organize the first secular government since the days of Rome. He established a written constitution and guaranteed the rights of his subjects. He was instrumental in promoting Roman law and representative institutions in southern Italy. Frederick would establish the University of Naples, the first secular university in the West, to counteract the Pope's think tanks. Its faculty included Christians, Muslims, and Jews. Their languages would be taught there along with the laws and literature of the cultures. Frederick loved nature and even authored an illustrated book titled The Art of Hunting with Birds. He was a keen observer of the forest and woodlands and was the first in the line of German naturalists that advocated learning science from nature. It was a line that would culminate 700 years later with Victor Schauberger and his trout engines based on implosion technology. Frederick would provide refuge for troubadours fleeing the Albigensian Crusade, which would leave over a million dead in the south of France. Under his patronage, these itinerant poets would lay the foundation for the lyrical quality, later exemplified by Dante, of the Italian language. A few years before his death in 1250, at the age of 56, Frederick would construct the Castel del Monte, a mysterious octagonal fortress built in southern Italy that emulated the style of the Knights Templar churches of the times. The Knights Templars were dedicated to the goddess, as well the Catholics, who were targeted by the papacy in the Albigensian Crusade. To these brave men and women, martyred at the hands of the excremental Pope and 
The eight-pointed star of Ishtar is far more sacred than the cross. The House of Hohenstaufen would only survive Frederick's death in 1250 by a few of few years before it succumbed to the papacy's interminable quest to exterminate it. Conradin, Frederick's grandson, would leave the relative safety of his kingdom in Swabia at the invitation of Count Guido di Montefeltro to come and claim his Italian throne, seized by the Pope stug Charles I of Naples. Montefeltro formally represented the senator of Rome, Henry of Castile, and he informally represented the Ghibellines, revolting all over southern Italy. After losing a battle in Italy, the 16-year-old king would end up being captured by Charles I and publicly beheaded in 1266. Long after it had passed into history, the bitter taste of what could have been remained in the mouths of the Italian and German Ghibellines, who supported the Hohenstaufen. Under the divisive eye of the Vatican, Germany and Italy would remain a collection of competing feudal states for hundreds of years, while the bold from among them would carve out global empires for Spain, France, and England. By the 16th century, the papacy had been stirring its Shakespearean cauldron of curses for almost 250 years. The Pope had brewed an alliance between himself, his stooges, and the King of France to crush the Republic of Venice once and for all. The League of Cambrai War would last from 1508 to 1516, it was the main event of the Italian wars, which were carried on from 1494 to 1559, the papacy's gift to the Renaissance. Intrigue swirled down every affluent byway of Venice, a city that had never really accepted the papacy's brand of God. In Piazza San Marco in Venice, high above the square, sits a bronze three-ton winged lion. The winged lion is the oldest symbol of Venice. The bronze has been Damaged and repaired many times over the centuries, but scholars agree the original casting dates back to between 2,500 years ago to 2,500 years ago. 2,800 years ago, a winged lion adorned the Ishtar Gate of Babylon. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, the great goddess Ishtar warns, If you refuse to give me the bull of heaven, I will break in the doors of hell and smash the bolts. There will be confusion of people, those above with those from the lower depths. I shall bring up the dead to eat food like the living, and the hosts of the dead will outnumber the living. Everyone's been an entree on the menu and now carrying the genetic marker Apple Group X in their blood. The Din Shamans of American Southwest know a little bit about Babylonian magic. They believe a soul can be transported in a turtle. In part two of Black Sun Rising, we told you the tattoo of the turtle over Tatanka Nara's heart marked him as SS. Babylon is the Greek word for Babalu, which means the gate of God, the gate of heavenly light. The cross of Alu is the eight-pointed star of Ishtar, represented in the temple churches as by the octagon in the esoteric occult symbolism by a turtle for the octagonal lines that constitute the carapace. The Royal Secret, a respected book on Masonic symbolism, gives the turtle as the symbol for Babalu. The explanation given by its author, Edward Clark, after a lot of improvisation, including some mental gymnastics that end in attributing the SWAT sticker to Jehovah and fabricating a zoological anecdote about turtle migrations in Africa, leaves much to be desired. 
But after muddling through the dogma he learned in the lodge, Mr. Clark does manage to produce the illustration below. A North American water turtle, he says, as a living metaphor for the earth. Take a good look at it and remember it. The very nature of the secret is it is never spoken. You will find no references to it in Wikipedia. As is documented in Part 5, the Technical Industrial Intelligence Committee sifted to three and a half billion papers. As is documented in Part 4, the Empire murdered its own best general to shut him up. The occult roots of National Socialism are there for all to see. They are impossible to hide, but they can be suppressed, and they have been. If 50 years ago, Morning of the Magicians had not become an international bestseller, no one would have ever heard of the real society. As we said at the very beginning, the Abois had many secrets, and the Germans are efficient. The Germans have always been efficient. Wilhelm Landing was an unrepentant member of the SS who wrote Idols Against Thule and several other books after the war that may or may not have been fiction. Landing, along with Rudolf J. Mund and Eric Halleck, formed the nucleus of what came to be known as the Vienna Group because their meetings were held in Langwink's widened studio in the center of Vienna. The message they calculating and delivered for those who had ears to hear was National Socialism had never been defeated. In fact, they had secret fly, uh, secret flying saucer fleet right here on Earth and that elements of National Socialism had fled to a planet orbiting Aldebaran a giant red star in the glaring bloodshot eye of the bull in the Taurus constellation. The Crab Nebula, whose birth in 1054 was recorded by the Anasazi in the petroglyph above, is also in the Taurus constellation. It, along with the constellation of Cygnus, discussed in part three of Black Sun Rising, is the major source of cosmic rays which are at this very moment bombarding the Earth and penetrating it up to a half mile down. Cosmic rays can alter DNA, which endows them with the ability to create a new man. In Latin, Taurus means bull, as in Ishtar's bull of heaven. According to law spread by the Vienna Group, these female mediums were able to establish contact with a prior human intelligence that relayed plans for a saucer-like vehicle that could transverse the ether. The plans were recorded by mediums, automatic writing of ancient Sumerian cuneiform. Thule society scholars were able to translate the writing, and by as early as 1922, perhaps the most brilliant of all the German scientists the West has never heard of, Winifred Otto Schumann used them to build an afterlife flying machine. Following World War II, Schumann would spend two years at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in America as the guest of Operation Paperclip. In 1952, he would discover the Schumann residence, the ULF, uh, that's ultra-frequency range, and ELF, that's extremely low-frequency range, resonant frequencies of the Earth's ionosphere cavity, previously discussed in Part 3. The Tool Society didn't emerge from a vacuum. In 1872, a brilliant young English Assyriologist named George Smith found an account of Noah's flood in the Epic of Gilgamesh. A Chaldean tablet 
he was translating that was known to be far older than the Bible. In 1876, he would publish the Chaldean account of Genesis. Just like Wolfgang Cardone, the German Mayan scholar from Part 3, Smith would die on expedition that very same year. He was 36 years old, but his book would be the genesis of the Pan-Babylonian movement on continental Europe. By the early 1900s, it had swept German intellectualism like a blitzkrieg, and German scholars, always resentful of Christianity, would sustain an attempt to rid Europe once and for all of an alien religion whose stories were all plagiarized from Babylon. Books and lectures on pan-Babylonianism and the controversies they spawned ushered in the 20th century for the educated German. Seething with 2,000 years of resentment for the Vatican, German scholarship and aristocracy bought into pan-Babylonianism with a vengeance. The Dusch Orient Geslacht, German Oriental Society, was founded to do research at the beginning of 1898. Its initial founders were the elite of Germany, including its wealthiest Jews, Henry James Simon and banker Franz von Mendelssohn. By 1901, the Dusch Orient was under the personal protection and financing of Kaiser Wilhelm II. With a blank check from the throne of Germany, the Dusch Orient would dig up half the Mesopotamian plain, even claiming to have found the Tower of Babylon. The outbreak of World War I in 1914 put an abrupt end to their excavations for a time. In the aftermath of the war, Bavaria was careening wildly out of control. Jewish Korea subversive and draft dodger Kurt Eisner was speaking before huge audiences promising socialist reforms. On November 7, 1918, he mobilized a mob of some 60,000 demonstrators in Munich. (coughs) And the tottering house of Wiedelsbach, which had ruled Bavaria for 700 years, collapsed. The king fled to exile. The very next day, Eisner proclaimed himself the new ruler of the Bavarian Free State. He was shot dead in the street three months later by Anton Valley, a German-Jewish aristocrat closely affiliated with the Thule Society, which was now mobilizing all of Germany against the Bolshevik menace. In his epic poem, The Aeneid, Roman poet Virgil calls the furthest point north, beyond what is known, Ultima Thule. Frederick Nietzsche, in The Antichrist, addresses his readers as Hyperboreans. In Greek mythology, the Hyperboreans were the first race of man, the primal race, more gods than men. They dwelled in the unknown north beyond the frozen wastelands and were sometimes visited as equals by Apollo, the god of light and wisdom. By early April 1919, a collection of crazed Jewish Bolsheviks under the direct command of Vladimir Lenin of Moscow proclaimed a revolution of love and Bavaria a Soviet republic. In between wiring Lenin that Bavaria's interim government had fled Munich taking with them the keys to the ministry toilet, Bavaria's new government issued a proclamation making the private ownership of guns a crime punishable by death. The new Soviet Republic Soviet foreign minister, Franz Lipp, an ex-mental patient who had once been institutionalized, declared war on Switzerland for its refusal to lend him 60 trains. Hostages, 
reputed to be members of the Thule Society, were taken from among the leading citizens of Munich. By the, by the time the Russian-born Jewish-German Bolsheviks, instigated by Lenin, celebrated Walpurgis Eve by brutally murdering their hostages, Germans had seen enough. Battle-hardened volunteers called Free Corps, organized by the Thule Society, were already encircling Munich. Among the murdered victims were Prince Gustav of Thurn and Taxis, and the Thule Society's secretary, Countess Hila von Wastoff. Also slain was Jewish-German nationalist professor Ernst Berger. It would turn out badly for the Bolsheviks. The prince was not only one of the most powerful men in the Thule Society, he's one of the most powerful men in all of Germany. Three days later, 30,000 enraged World War I veterans stormed Munich. In vicious street fighting, they made short work of the makeshift Red Army and its leader, Russian-born Jew Eugene Levine. A thousand Bolsheviks were killed in the fighting, and almost a thousand more would be executed, including Levine. Unfortunately, a patent had been set, and even though German, loyal German Jews had killed and died fighting the Bolsheviks, in the eyes of the average German in the street, Jews were now the enemy. After the Bolsheviks had been crushed, Rudolf von Sibatendorf, the mysterious point man for the Thule Society, would melt back into the shadows. By 1920, he was gone. He had appeared in Germany in 1913 with a Turkish passport, a German title, and seemingly limited fun limitless funds and energy. By April of 1919, he had organized a free corps, recruiting many personally from his office at the Hotel Deutsche Kaiser in Nuremberg. In 1923, the Free Corps, renamed Bund Oberland, would march in Hitler's failed beer hall push. They would go on to become the Sturmbritung, or SA, and eventually carry Hitler to power on their broad shoulders. Among Sabatendorf's seemingly endless preparations for the advent of National Socialism was buying the newspaper, Munchener Biobachter, in 1919. In 1920, it would be, become the Volksche Beobachter, and after being purchased by Hitler in 1921, it would become the official newspaper of National Socialism for the next 25 years. Historians now pretty much concur that Sabatendorf, through Anton Drexler, founded the Dusch Appetate, or the DAP, in the beginning of 1919. Early in 1920, the party would be renamed under its new leader, DAP member 555, Adolf Hitler. Henceforth, they would be known as the National Socialistische Duste Apparat Partei, or NSDAP, what the Zionist media drones referred to as the Nazis. In 1933, Sibatendorf would reappear in Germany, celebrating the triumph of National Socialism with his brand new book, Viva Hitler Kam, Before Hitler, a Historical Study. It gave dates, places, sources of funding, and even names, like Guido von Liss and Jörg Lanz von Liebenswalls. By then, the fact that National Socialism was rooted in mystic pan-Babylonianism of the Thule Society was not to be openly discussed. Master occultists like Dietrich Eckhart had trained and constructed Hitler specifically play the role of Messiah. It would not do for Christian Germans to know that their Fuhrer was the high priest of a different god. 
1934, the second printing of the Spartan North book was confiscated, and he was whisked back to Turkey, where he spent the war on the payroll of German intelligence. His field of expertise, according to his perplexed handler, Herbert Rittlinger, was Tibetan lamas. He disappeared at the war's end, like most of the other key national socialists. The dazzling women of the Vril Society also all disappeared, without a trace, after the war, said to have gone to Aldebaran with their leader, Maria Orsic. In, May, in March of 1945, right before their disappearance, they predicted they would return in 1992-93 or 2004-05. Their agenda upon their return would be to promote the impending final battle between the forces of light embodied in the Gnostic individualism that National Socialism is rooted in, and the collective darkness of Judeo-Christian egalitarianism, embodied by Bolshevism. In 1992, Preston Nichols and the first installment of the Montour Project books appeared with the rendition of a statue of an enormous rearing horse on the cover. In 1993, an artist was commissioned to create a 30-foot two. 32-foot-tall replica of that now infamous horse at Denver International Airport. In 2005, a group based in Venice that traces its pedigree back, at least to landing, and the Vienna group put, a web, put up a website called Casa Nostra. The group from Venice is known to also be active in Milan and America. It includes Reinhard Heydrich's 90-year-old one-time secretary. The site itself is in German and originates in Munich, the cradle of the original Vril Society. Munich is also home to base base for Gundren Berwitz, Heinrich Himmler's daughter. A few years ago, in its June 17, 2011 issue, Zionist mouthpiece, Mail Online, accused the aged but still pin-sharp Gundren of being grandmother of a new breed of female Nazis on the radical right. These disciples of Hitler wear the traditional rimbled dresses of Bavaria and their hair plaits. But the contents of Casa Nostra site are purported to be insights into the Ordo Borsentoro, a 500-year-old order whose objectives transcend the world of the living. The word Borsentoro is from the legendary boat or barge built somewhere back in time to commemorate the marriage of Venice to the sea. There is enough evidence chronicled for anyone who wants to see it, in both behind the bush and black sun rising, that there has been a breakaway civilization long before the rise of National Socialism. There have been breakaway worlds since time itself began. To quote Gordon Duff, who began this essay with his disclosures on Comedy Sun, reality, existence, has nothing to do, nothing to do with what you're to- told it is. Reality is commonly understood as an etiological, ide- as it's, reality as it's commonly understood is an etiological myth. German scientists have openly stated that National Socialism had help from other worlds. What other worlds has never been revealed, and almost everything that is known is conjecture. The Klosenostus website seems to be able to provide details from an entirely new perspective, one that is in accordance with both historical facts and the ancient occult principles to which the Magi worked their miracles. 
From henceforth, we will be using them as a source. In Corsa Nostra law, what would eventually become National Socialism began in Venice in 1510. Antonia Contenta, a Roman noblewoman with the secret backing of the Venetian Dodge, along with the leading Venetian and German merchants, founded the Auto Bocentura, an aristocratic generational conspiracy dedicated to bringing about a new aeon and a unified German-Roman empire. The Novus Auto Seclorum would be free from the lying, self-serving morality of the papistry. Men and women would be equal, the hoarding of wealth forbidden, and the rights of the individual respected. After World War II, the Auto Bocentura would be called the Auto Palazzo Stern by the Black Prince of Italy, Junio Valero Bugese, and the German Superman, Otto Scazzini. They were the last known members. The order itself, or perhaps just rumors of it, are the reservoir from which the torrent of the 21st century's synarchism flows into the West. Antonia Contenta, aside from being a Roman patrician by birth, traced her pedigree back to Geoffrey de St. Omar. He was tied to her bloodline by her marriage to a nobleman from Burgundy. Any short synopsis of temple mythology given at, at the dawn of the 12th century, Burgundy was ground zero for the secrets of the Cistercians, and Geoffrey de St. Omar was, once one of, was one of the nine founding members of the Knights Templar. The esoteric law of the Autobosentorum acknowledges that the priestess has the power of walking through the times. It is said that Emperor Rudolf II of the House of Habsburg was visited in the 17th century and given instruction on propagating the order's gold through the Thirty Years' War. He is also said to have sighted an illegitimate child with the priestess, who was herself a direct descendant of Augustus Caesar. The hidden bloodline carried through that child is the rightful heir and ruler of Novus Ordo Secorum. According to the law, Giulietta Mount Montefeltro, who was the high priestess of the order from 1516 to 1562. No one knows what happened to her after that, but it's said that during that span, she never aged a single day. Men were afraid to look at her because the seer was become enchanted by her beauty. For half a century, she inspired fear and fascination in Europe's aristocracy. Everyone knew she was a sorceress. She came and went from the Dodger's palace like she owned it. She could be in Rome and Madrid on the same day, and she was, as she was seen being carried on a litter, escorted by two armed men to the Piazza San Marco. It was the Count Guido di Montefeltro who had pledged the allegiance of both the Ghibelline, the Ghibellines of the ancient and the ancient Roman aristocracy to the doomed Hohenstaufen prince, Conradin. Two hundred years later, the House of Montefeltro would be a catalyst for the intrigues of the Renaissance, when in 1478, Count Frederico di Montefeltro, which conspired with Pope Sixtus IX to murder the Mendici brothers, both the Vatican and the rest of Europe's finances, while they were attending Easter services. This blasphemous piece of papal treachery set in motion the disastrous Italian wars, when one of the brothers survived. The plot has been recently chronicled in the historical novel The Montefeltro Conspiracy by Marcello Simonetta. The surviving brother, Lorenzo di Medici, would allow several of the family banks to collapse 
and the Fuga family of Augsburg replaced the Medici as Europe's chief financial power. The Fuga would bank, bankroll and ri the rise of the House of Habsburg, the pinnacle of power in Europe. In 1576, they would replace Rudolf II on the throne of the Holy Roman Empire, and the Habsburg dynasty would reign uninterrupted till 1918. In spite of the family prominence in European history, documentation on Giulietta Montefeltro is non-existent. Her real name was probably Livia Laudan, which is denied by the Cosa Nostra law, but her name is sometimes used interchangeably with Montefeltro and sometimes as her successor. Laudan was said to be in possession of Spiritus Eros, the occult doctrines of the order. Leonardo Laudan was Dodge of Venice from 1501 to 1521, there would be two more Venetian dodges from the House of Lorden in the ensuing years. Perhaps having a sorceress in the family would have impeded the family dynasty. The legend has the Autobosator by way of its founder, Antonia Contenta, as the heir of the temple's secrets, one of them being visitations, magical instruction, and a gift from the goddess Ishtar. She appeared to a group of Knights Templar under the command of Coma Herbertus Koch, while they were on crusade near this ancient city of Nineveh in 1220. The hauntingly beautiful goddess, sometimes boyish with her sharp crop, sometimes with long flowing hair, told them to retire to the Uttersburg Mountain and await further instruction. There she appeared to them multiple times over the next decade or so. She gave them a dagger and a, a, mirror, a dagger, a mirror, and a purple crystal half amethyst, half quartz. It could open a portal into the green world. She told him that man's physical body is naught but a temporal home, constructed for and by his timeless soul to manifest its existence in this crude world of matter. This world of empty and endless distances between the other worlds, this world of death and decay is a kingdom of shadows created by a dark god to enmesh and snare the luminous spirit which is the divine essence of every soul. The rightful residence of that lost soul is a place between life and death, what is now called the ethereal world. It is the world of the unborn and of the dead. It is the world of many worlds. Ishtar called it the green world. Ishtar told them of a perpetual battle that raged across these unseen realms and the kingdoms of the sublime. She told them, that this was the age of darkness, but in the coming age of Aquarius, the light of the inner sun, the black sun, will reveal these invisible worlds, and man will be restored to greatness. She told them the soul of a great warrior king slept within the sacred Othersburg mountain to awaken in those times for a reckoning with the Lord of Shadows. In victory, he will unite the tribes of the Holy Roman Empire and create a new order of life. Some say the stone is Garel, as in Holy Garel, one of the two versions of the Holy Grail, G-L-R-L. It is coveted by the demon god who once possessed it, but was tricked by Ishtar when she cut her hair short like a boy to steal it from him. The demon god in the prophecies of Ishtar is none other than the Abrahamic god, represented in the world of the living by the Pope. During the final stage siege of the Albanian crusade in 1244, the stone is said to have been whisked from the grasp of the Pope's bloody fingers by some woman who smuggled it out, 
on the very night before Monsiga fell. Sometime during this group of, sometime during all this, a group of knights were instructed to form a secret Slavonic order in southern Germany, Austria, and northern Italy. These knights would be entrusted with the task of guarding the stone for the final battle between darkness and light. The order, shrouded in shadows even to other knights Templar, was to be known as Diharen von Schwarzenstein, the Lords of the Black Stone. SS is an abbreviation for the German acronym for the order, DHVSS. Somewhere in time, legend grew around the mysterious Ottersburg Mountain. Some say Frederick I, with his long red beard and fiery temper, keen for battle. Others, Frederick II, who outwitted the Pope and every, and every Pope the Vatican threw against him, sleeps within his Rambothine catacombs. They are attended to by elves that will awake to lead the that will awake to lead, and will awake to lead the armies of the light on the day of the final battle with darkness. Since people have known it, the Udersberg Mountain has always been a place of unexplained phenomena. Hundreds have gone missing on, on and around the mountain. There are stories of some of them reappearing months later, not knowing where they have been. There are other great, there are other stories, ancient stories, of little people coming out of the mountains in crafts and flying off into, into the night. German newspapers have speculated that the mountain, like the Bermuda Triangle, is a portal through time. Adolf Hitler was said to have believed that the mountain was a doorway into the inner earth. He had had the Berghof, his vacation home residence, for 10 years built overlooking it. He would spend long hours peering at the mountain through the state-of-the-art telescopes. On a visit to Austria in 1992, the Dalai Lama specifically asked to see the Ottersberg Mountain, calling it the Sleeping Dragon and the heart chakra of the world.